so uh, for, the, for the second week, uh, we are going to be doing a, a topical message. Um, like I said last week, I guess it's just frailty. I could not uh, get focused this week at all. And so I just want to speak to you about what's on my mind. And what is on my mind is prayer. It's, uh, I could stand up here for the next 35 or 40 minutes and tell you about answers to prayer in the last two weeks and, and praise and glorify the Lord just in, in answers to prayer. But, um, but uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about prayer today. I don't even think I told Mike what I was going to be speaking on. I think I told him at the beginning of the week, I have no idea. And uh, the songs that he, he chose today were so good for uh, the, the Sunday morning service. But um, I, I, have a, I have a very basic question for you. Uh, and and it, it, it is this. What keeps us from losing our salvation? The, the Reformers call the fact that we don't lose our salvation, they called it perseverance of the saints. Some, some traditions call it, you know, once saved, always saved. But the Bible teaches that when we are saved, we will persevere. And so a basic question is, what keeps a Christian from throwing in the towel when, when life gets difficult? Of course, all of us are sitting here saying, well, God, it's the power of God, right? The power of God causes us to persevere. For example, uh, John, John 10, 28, Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So our salvation is, is God's work, isn't it? He, he's very clear about that. Even, even our sanctification, our growth in Christ-likeness, Paul said in Philippians 1, 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it about to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And here we run into what seems to be a bit of a contradiction if you think about it. We are called to sanctify ourselves, are we not? Be ye holy, for I am holy. That's what Peter, Peter uh, quotes the Old Testament there in 1 Peter 1.15, that we are to be holy in our, our conduct. We are called to, we are commanded to. But at the same time, our verse said that God is the one who brings it about to completion. This is also attested to by Paul in Romans 8.30 where he says, listen to this, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so here we see that, that it's God doing the work, and yet some of the work we are commanded to do. So we have a, a seeming contradiction here, don't we? It's God who makes us holy, yet we are called to be holy. So God's going to preserve and protect his saints, and God is going to make his children holy, but it still takes me back to the question, what keeps us from losing our salvation? Is, is this automatic or is there some sort of mechanism that actualizes God's protection of us? And I'm asking this question because we, we take it for granted. I mean, we say to ourselves, the common answer would be, well, yeah, he preserves us. He's God. That's what he's supposed to do. That's part of his nature. 
And this is where I want to show you something from Scripture today. And to me, it's something profound, but we don't give it much thought. And so take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And we're going to begin reading in verse, actually we're only going to read one verse right now, verse number 31. Let me set it up for you. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. They're finishing what we commonly call the Last Supper. It's the Passover meal. That night he's going to be arrested. He's going to be betrayed. The next day he's going to be crucified. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. Now remember something. Peter's real name is Simon. That's his given name. In, in Matthew 16, Jesus renames him Peter after his confession. He said, uh, you are Peter and upon this rock. And the, 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 the word, uh, well, I'll just say the root word is, is rock there. Peter is the word rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And so in this passage here where he calls him Simon, we have another view into the realm which at present we cannot see. Jesus told Peter, Peter, you can't see it right now, but in the background, Satan is asking permission to shake up the disciples. Now, where do I get that from? If you look at what Jesus said in Luke 21, 22, 31, you see the word you is used twice there. That word is plural. So he's not referring to Peter alone. He's referring to all the disciples that happened to be in the room at that time. And Peter is the representative of the whole. Now, commentators are not altogether sure what this means. Pastors aren't either. I looked at a lot of them this week. And we don't know exactly what it means, but there is a similar phrase from the Old Testament in Amos 9.9. It says, For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes a sieve, but not a pebble shall fall to the earth. The idea is the shaking that goes on when they're separating the wheat from the chaff. And so what he is saying, don't miss this, Jesus is telling the disciples, Satan is seeking to shake you disciples so violently as one sifts wheat that he wants to cause you to fail. Satan is trying to unsettle the disciples and cause them to become unfaithful. That's what's going on here. We, we, we see this in Scripture already. It's, it's in Scripture. Take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 1. I'll show you. Job chapter 1. This tactic is as old as mankind, this tactic of Satan. We're going to begin reading verse number 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now, this phrase for sons of God is speaking about angels. Before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, by the way, uh, New Testament class, Satan answered the Lord and said, you see it? 
Remember what I was talking about, the Hebrewisms in Luke? They know what I'm talking about. The rest of you, I'm sorry you're not in the class. But uh, it's, a, it's um, okay, now i got to explain myself, don't I? Luke is, a, is a, not a Jew, but he uses a lot of Jewish expressions. In Greek, you don't never say answered and said. That was a strictly Hebrew expression. And Luke uses that phrase in his gospel, and it's not found in Greek writing. And I was just pointing out, here's a Hebrew phrase, answered him and said, sorry about that, I shouldn't have brought it up, but it's there. All right. Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro from the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And notice what happens here. Number one, God was the one who brought up Job, right? Number two, Job, uh, Satan accuses Job. Now, what's the meaning of the word Satan? It's accuser. It's one of the meanings of his name. He's the accuser. His name describes his character. And here, he's accusing Job before the God. And it's stunning enough that Satan says that to God. But I want you to notice God's response in verse number 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And of course, we know what happened, right? He lost everything. Family. Uh, possessions, everything, uh, all his uh, livelihood. Then chapter number two, Satan comes back. Satan said, yeah, well, you touch his body and, and he's going to curse you and die. And God said, okay, you can't kill him, but you can, you can severely afflict him. And Satan is given the, uh, permission to afflict Job's body. His wife knew the gig and she's the one, she looked at him in chapter 2 and verse number 9 and said, do you still hold fast your integrity? Just curse God and die. You know, God, God is doing this to you. She understood this. God is allowing this. So now turn back to Luke chapter number 22. Turn back to Luke 22 with me. Jesus is telling Peter in verse number 31 that Satan would maneuver to make the disciples to be thrown in such despair at Jesus' death that his death would totally dash their hopes that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because they're thinking still that he's going to be the Messiah that overthrows the Roman Empire. Overthrows the Romans in Jerusalem. And when Jesus died... Satan wanted to use that to his advantage and completely cause them to lose their faith. Now, there's a couple natural reactions. First, after they fled, they would be enticed to be thinking about their own interests rather than those of Jesus. In other words, hey, this whole following Christ thing, it's so dangerous, we could lose our lives. And so they're going to think about themselves 
and they don't want to follow Jesus because the cost is too high, right? Second, um, because they denied the Lord, maybe they do want to follow Christ. The second temptation would be to get them so discouraged that they never serve him again. Is that not a temptation? Satan uses things to get us to not serve God. So follow what's going on here. This is important. First, Satan aspires to shake God's saints so severely that their faith crumbles, they abandon Christ, and he does this because he is the accuser, and he wants to be able to stand before God and accuse them before God. Secondly, and more astoundingly, God sometimes turns his saints over to Satan to be afflicted deeply and severely. What kind of person does that to their own children? That's severe, isn't it? And so there's this whole spiritual realm in which evil spiritual beings are working to overthrow the plan of God. And sometimes the evil forces are the root cause of calamity and difficulty in your life, and sometimes they're just using it to their advantage. I have a question. What afflictions have you suffered or are you suffering? Maybe you've been abandoned by a spouse. Maybe you are are rejected by people who you thought were your friends. Maybe you had a business venture fail miserably and you're asking yourself, why, God? Maybe someone close to you died. Or maybe you, maybe you suffer from chronic illness and you're thinking to yourself, if I could just get over it. Whether or not they come from Satan, they could. He will attempt to take advantage of these things to get you to turn away from God. That is the spiritual reality behind the physical things going on in our world. Jesus said that falling away in the midst of trial is very real. Do you remember back in in Matthew chapter number 13 when he's given the parable of the soils? The disciples wanted him to explain the soils, and he's talking about the stony ground soil. And this is what he said. He said, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and then what? When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. That is Satan's strategy. In your difficulty, he wants you to turn away from God. Now this is all background to what I want to share. This is just the introduction to the sermon. Now go back to my original question at the beginning. I asked this question. I said, what is the mechanism that empowers God's preservation of us? Is there something behind it? And the answer is definitively yes. Let's look at Luke 22, verse number 31 one more time, and then we'll continue reading. 
Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Look at the next phrase. But I have prayed for you. And what did he pray? He prayed that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus, the Son of God, who has the power to accomplish this, prayed for Peter to remain. Is that not astounding? He prayed for all the disciples to persevere in spite of severe shaking. And so think with me. Yes, it is in God's character to preserve His saints and to preserve the disciples, but He prayed for Peter to remain. We read these words oftentimes and we give them very little thought. Think about what the Bible is saying here. Jesus is praying for something that he already knows is in God's character to perform. That should add a dimension to our prayer. Because many times, if you're like me, now maybe I'm the only person in the sanctuary that does this, you think not to pray about some things because it's automatic. God does it. You ever fall in that temptation? Nobody's going to say yes, I know. (laughs) Just in case you think this is a one-off, I want to go somewhere else in Scripture with you. Turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This is the same scenario that we found in Luke 22. This is John's recounting of it, and he's recounting Jesus what we call his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. This is the night of his betrayal, and he is praying for believers. I want us to look, first of all, in verse number 8. And he prays, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and look, they have believed that you sent me. Okay? Next verse. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now what is he praying for with those whom God has given him? Answer verse number 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, And here it is, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one as we are one. And we see two major concerns of Jesus in this prayer to God. What are they? Number one, that all who are given to God, in other words, all who are saved, they are kept by God's power. They remain in God, right? That's the first request. The second request is what? Then that they enjoy the spiritual unity, the bond of unity that the Trinity itself enjoys. That is God's desire. That's Jesus' desire. He prays for that. And that is why Satan works so hard to divide churches, right? He wants division. 
Because that's, it's not God's will for them to be divided. It's God's will that they be in unity and experience that joy that can only come. But I want you to go down to verse number 14 now. Look at verse number 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not in the world. Okay, so here you have the surface level, um, the, the things that we can see. And what can we see? The world hates Christians. Right? That's the human level. But then he dives into the spiritual world behind it. Look at the next verse. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from whom? The evil one. Keep them from the evil one. Do not allow the evil one to shake them so severely they become unfaithful. Isn't that amazing? We oftentimes do not think about the that there is spiritual battles going on behind the physical manifestations that we see. We chalk it up to politics and culture. It's not politics and culture. It's, it's spiritual evil, spiritual wickedness. Here Jesus shows the human level, presentation of trials. People hate Christians. And he reveals a spiritual level source. Satan is trying to de- uh, destroy their faith. But here's the question I have for you. Who is he speaking of? Who's he speaking of? Go to verse number 20. Verse number 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe me through their word. Now, who is he talking about? You and me. Before you were born, before you ever trusted Christ as your Savior, Jesus Christ was praying for you. Isn't that amazing? Every believer who has ever suffered at the hand of of wicked men and governments throughout the history of the church, from the Christians that were slaughtered by the hands of the Romans to the modern-day believers in the Sudan who are being slaughtered as well, the believers in Afghanistan who are losing their lives right now because the Taliban has taken over, these people, Christ prayed that God would, would keep them in the midst of severe trial. And he's still praying for them today. Think with me, folks. The very Son of God prayed. The one who has the power to preserve and to keep. The one who could stop the storm in a word. Who could raise the dead in the same word. He prayed. The one who had all the power, he prayed. Did he need to pray? I don't think he did. But he wanted to pray. He loved fellowship with the Father. He loved having access to the Father. He enjoyed conversing with the Father, praising the Father, asking for his own glory, giving up requests to God, knowing that God would answer his prayers. He loved access to the throne of heaven. Remember, Jesus was not at the throne in heaven at this point in his life. For the first time in all of eternity, he is not on the throne. And he enjoyed that access. And he loved bringing petitions to the Father. And millions and millions of persecuted Christians 
have been preserved because of the prayer of Jesus, because it is Jesus' will and God's will that they be preserved. Isn't that amazing? It's astounding. I know I keep using those words. I don't know what else to use, honestly. I looked at my sermon manuscript and I thought, they're going to get tired of me saying these words, but I don't know how else to describe it. I should have looked up in Mythosaurus. <laughs> now listen, Jesus Christ came to earth to demonstrate to us how we are to live. His pattern of life is our pattern. We saw earlier around Christmas time in our study of Luke 1 that Jesus' ministry pattern was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, cho- Jesus could have done all his miracles, but he chose to do, perform the miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit so that he can demonstrate to us that all of our ministry is done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And now we are seeing from this passage that we have another pattern, and that is Jesus prayed as a pattern for us to pray, right? He prayed so often, and he prayed so effectively, and so unlike everyone else, that the disciples looked at him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. In John 17, in verse number 15, if you're still in John, Jesus prayed for preservation from the evil one, but two verses later, he prayed for something else. In John 17, 17, he prayed that the saints would be sanctified, that they would be holy, that they would be set apart to God. And so, again, we are being taught to pray for the very works that God promised to perform because he promised to sanctify us, and yet Jesus is praying for that. So we pray for the things that we know God's going to provide. Now, what's our problem with that? What's our problem with that? Our problem is that we don't know what to make of prayer. If we're to be completely honest. If we understand who God is, if we understand what the Bible teaches about prayer, a lot of times we don't know what to make of it. Let me give you an example. John, 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says this. It says, This is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Alright, so if we pray and we ask and something's in His will, He hears us. Next verse. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. Now for millions and millions of believers, that's a wonderful, wonderful promise, isn't it? But for many people, it is also a struggle. It's a discouragement. How? What is our struggle? Let me see if I can put it into a sentence. Here's many people's thoughts. If only the prayers in God's will get answered, then our prayers don't matter. Because God's going to do His will anyway. And that is where you're wrong. Because here's where we encounter a mystery. The Bible tells us Listen, the Bible tells us that our prayer changes things. We have have two seemingly irreconcilable teachings in Scripture. You know what they are? 
One, God only answers prayer that's within his will. Two, our prayer changes things. Am I right? The Bible teaches both things. To be honest, this is the same type of incomprehensible truth as the Trinity. I love, like in new members class, how many of you understand the Trinity? You know, anybody raises their hand, they're, they're just a sitting duck. <laughs> we know what the Bible teaches about the Trinity, but we don't understand it. It's impossible to understand, isn't it? it it's, it's the same as the sovereignty of God and the will of man in salvation. We don't understand how those two things go together. The Bible teaches at the same time that, that God chooses people to salvation, and then it also teaches that man is responsible for his choice. How do we reconcile those two things? Or how about this one? It's also difficult to understand that God is eternal. We can't think about something that has no beginning. You try to do that, and your mind gets boggled, doesn't it? It's, it's incomprehensible. But listen, people, our job is not to solve these incomprehensible truths. We are, this is what we're called to do. We are called to understand as much as we possibly can about them and then act in faith. Isn't that wonderful? Understand as much as you can. You're not going to understand as much as you would like, and then you just act in faith. And so I just want to encourage you and tell you, your prayers change things. Your prayer makes things happen. Consider James 5, 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might, rain, might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now what do we know? It was 100% God's will that there would be a famine for three and a half years followed by a rain and fruitfulness. But we also know 100% that God answered a specific prayer of Elijah. How that goes together, we don't know, do we? But he answered Elijah's prayer. Let's consider another one. King Jeroboam experienced answer to the prophet's prayer. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as it was before. This is the incident, by the way, where, the, where a prophet went to Jeroboam who, who had split the kingdom. He was the one to split the kingdom, and he raised his hand against the prophet, and God withered his hand right in the middle. And he said, pray for my hand to be restored. Now, it indicates, by the, the, the assumption then is, if the prophet had looked at him and said no, this hand would not have been fixed. Right? But it was God's will that his hand get fixed, and the prophet prayed, and it was fixed. Consider this one, 2 Kings 4.32. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And then we see a, a lot of other things happen, and guess what? The child came back to life. And of course, you know the child was healed. How about one from Job? 
Let's go back to Job. Job chapter 42, verse number 8. Now therefore, this is God talking to Job's three friends. Right? Take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. In implication, if Job said, no, I ain't going to do it, they'd be stuck. So it was God's will for them to be forgiven, and it's God's will for Job, and Job's prayer answered, right? Can you understand this? It's incomprehensible, but we can understand what's written, right? James tells us that we need to pray. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. So my question is, do you believe in prayer? Do you believe that God answers your specific prayer? Do you believe that God answers the prayers of churches when they gather together to pray? Listen, this is so important that you you don't miss this. There are spiritual blessings that come to churches that pray together. And these blessings can only come when you pray. There are spiritual blessings that you receive only when you pray. Not only are you affecting spiritual change when you pray, but you are also laying up treasures in heaven. So parents, parents, pray for your children's salvation. Pray for their spiritual life. Pray for their growth and sanctification. Pray for their Continued perseverance in salvation. Pray for their future spouses. Teenagers, start praying for your husband and wife right now. Missionaries send prayer letters. And more than anything else, what do they always want? They want prayer. But it's hard to pray for a salvation of a man that a missionary is witnessing to in Ireland. But you actually affect spiritual change when you do. Uh, we have missionary friends, the Paro's over in Ireland. He sends out a letter every single week. I witness to this man. Would you please pray for this? We have this spiritual situation going. It's my privilege to pray for the Paro's. It's my privilege to pray for the rains in, in uh, Kenya who are working, have been ministering for decades now and praying for specific people to get, get saved. It's my privilege to pray for the Yips over in Chad that we support, the the Layers in Poland, the Dawsons down in South America, the ministries that we support here. Because when we pray, we're pushing back the forces of darkness. Seth and Michelle Atkins, right over here, raise your hand. I want everybody to see you guys. They, uh, They are going to Estonia. Did you know that? Missionaries to Estonia, I think next month you guys are going for training down in Florida, right? March, I think it is. Um, and, and so we, as a church, can pray for two people we know personally. Right now, we can begin praying for them. Pray for all that they're going to encounter. 
We can pray that God protects their children while they're over there in a godless society. Protect them from wicked people. We can pray that Seth and Michelle uh, keep from being sifted by the hardships that they might encounter over in Estonia. We can pray that, um, that God prepares the hearts of the people who will hear the gospel message, that God establishes church, that God establishes the work of their hands. All these things are God's will, and therefore they please the Lord when they are prayed, and you can begin praying for them right now. You can have part in that. The only reason we know, I want you to think about something. The only reason that we know that prayer activated the preserving of Peter is that Jesus told him. You know, Jesus, it could have been that God just preserved Peter and they never knew it. In life, Peter would have gone on, he would have, he would have denied Christ, repented and come back, and, and everyone would have been none the wiser. But instead, Jesus pulled back the curtain and said, this is the ultimate reality that's going on, Peter. You need to pray. Remember what he said in the garden? Men ought what? To pray and not to faint, right? And, and, and he, he was praying there. And so... Um, If what Jesus said is true, then the great majority of the prayer that you offer to God, you will never see the extent of how it's answered. And that's our problem, isn't it? Be honest. It's hard to pray for something that you don't see a difference. Really hard. And that is where the eyes of faith take over and we act upon what we know to be true. And so we go along and we see spiritual growth in people. We see people come to the Lord. We see hearts changed. And we just assume that's the way it's supposed to be. But think about the blessings that come when we, in faith, pray for things that we will never see the extent of the answer of. But it happens. Paul's prayers for all the churches. I pray that you be full of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And, and see the height and breadth and depth of his love for you. And he goes on to, to talking about spiritual maturity. My, my, my position, a portion of every day of my life, I take our directory and I pray for regular attenders and people in the directory and I pray through the list. And it's intentional spiritual prayer. If you have children, I pray for your children's salvation by name. And then I also pray that God calls them into ministry. I pray for our church, that our church will be unified, that it will be protected from the evil one, that we will grow in our love for Christ. Why am I doing all this? Because God tells us that He answers prayer. I'm not telling you this to build myself up. I'm actually telling you this to give you ideas how you can pray. How you can pray for one another and how you can pray for your own children. And this is how the Christian life is to be lived. We pray in faith knowing that God is answering my prayer because I am praying in His will. 
and we pray because our prayer changes things and makes things happen, and we pray in faith, and we know that every prayer in God's will is answered. And I think, as I close, that is why so many prayer meetings are organ recitals. Because we can see those answers to prayer, can't we? What's harder to discern is how God is answering the prayers of the ultimate reality, which is a spiritual world. And so my prayer for Providence Bible Church is that we are a praying church. Do you want to you know there's a spiritual, very real spiritual warfare being waged in your household, in your community, and in your church? The, the forces of spiritual darkness are working against us and against God. And you can't see it, but it's as real as that stupid snow that we got today. Can I say stupid? I don't know. It's as real, it's as, real as the meal that you're going to eat after, after church. And you can't see it, but it's real. And do you want to be part of pushing back the darkness? Do you want to be part of pushing back the darkness? You don't do it by looking over your shoulder looking for some spiritual boogeyman or looking for evidence of demonic activity. Instead, you pray. You pray for one another. You know what else you do? You pursue Christ-likeness. You make a decision every day. I'm going to live for God. I'm going to obey what He tells me to do. You're going to make an effort to grow in your sanctification. You push back to darkness by making your priority to obey Scripture. You push back to darkness by getting involved in various ministries that our church has. You push back to darkness by every time you witness to someone. You're pushing on the darkness. You're, every time... Um, you, you go minister to a believer who's hurting or show the love of Jesus Christ to somebody who may not be a believer but who needs to see it. You are pushing on the spiritual darkness going on. When you're involved in recovery efforts, when there's been a natural disaster, when you help in a soup kitchen, when you help relieve somebody's pain, when you minister in the hospitals, when you give a meal to your neighbor, these are things that push on the darkness. You can't see it now, but maybe, maybe in His grace, one day in eternity, God will allow you to see the results of what you have done. Won't that be wonderful? Lord, I pray for our church to become a praying church. Lord, we really want to be involved in pushing back the spiritual forces of evil that are all around us. By looking at a sermon like this today, it could be very easy for us to look kooky when we talk about spiritual forces that are evil and dark and wicked. But that's what the Bible teaches. In our Western materialistic age, we don't want to admit that there's anything below surface level actions. But there is, and it's very real. And so, Lord, I pray that you will encourage us to pray 
that you will encourage us to live for God. Encourage us to obey. Encourage us to witness, Lord, and be involved in ministry and do those things that the enemy hates because it's making the light of the gospel shine brighter and brighter and brighter. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.